Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the powerful truth that it contains. And Father, I pray that you would just bless us this morning with your word, that we might be encouraged and challenged. And Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would be glorified and honored in what is said and done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I have uh, for some time been working on uh, fixing up a truck, and uh, a while ago as I was working on this truck, I um, came to a point where it was pretty apparent that uh, it needed something that was probably beyond my level of expertise, which is not a whole lot, um, but I went to drive it, and it went in reverse, but not forward, okay, so if you know what that means... Um, that means usually that the transmission is, is shot, it's, it's no good. And so what I did was um, I managed to get the transmission out and I took it to a shop and they fixed it for me and I put the transmission back in and I was all excited because I couldn't believe I actually got it out and then got it to go back in and didn't have any leftover bolts, which was a good thing. And I turned the thing on, and I was all excited because it started, and I put it in, in, in reverse, and it wouldn't move. And then I put it in drive, and it wouldn't move. And I was starting to get angry and um, beginning to wonder about my mechanical skills. And I actually quit for about an hour, went out to eat with my wife, and, and when we came back, it dawned on me. It needed even more transmission fluid than what I had put in it because when you put in a completely drained one, it takes about twice the amount as, as when you start it, uh, when you just refill it. So I filled it back up and sure enough, the thing actually moved and I was impressed that it somehow worked. Um, but it got me thinking about this passage. And as we walk through it and we, we talk about, you know, one of the things that's amazing about the book of Philippians is that every single passage builds upon each passage. So you cannot read the book of Philippians and just pick out one section and think, this is my section that I'm going to work on, because you need every aspect of it, because it builds upon itself. And, and as we talk about the theme, joy in Jesus, and, and what a powerful thing, and I find it ironic that the Lord is, is causing me to work through Philippians and joy in Jesus, when this has probably been one of those times, the seasons of life where I have been struggling to find joy in my own life. And, and that's usually how it works. So when you're struggling with something, that's when the Lord wants you in the Word in a specific place. And as we walk through this, we talked about um, the unity of the body and how that builds joy. And that is the, the greatest sense of joy is when the body is unified. And Paul talked about it. And, and if you remember several weeks ago when Travis taught, he talked about that, that aspect of the commonality that brings us together, and that is the, the joy in Christ. And then we started looking at passages where, where Paul talks about joy and how it fits in the, in the walk of faith and, and, and to live for Christ and, and, and that we get our joy from the beauty of the gift of suffering, which seems so paradoxical. And then we looked last week at the greatest threat to our joy. What is it that steals and robs us of joy? You talk about a paradox. The thing that steals our joy is selfishness. It always does. The thing that, that we look at and we say, well, what is it that's going to make me happy 
is actually when we pursue that at the expense of what Paul's example is of service, when we, when we pursue selfishness, it actually steals our joy away. And the greatest joy we find is in the example of Jesus as Paul kind of walked through. And we're going to, uh, I just want to remind you and rehearse it for you again. What Paul says, here's the example. He says, if there's any encouragement, chapter 2, any comfort from love, any uh, participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Joy comes from that unity, he says. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, literally, the Greek there means one soul, that you are one. And he says, do nothing from, and he goes through this list of things, of selfishness is ultimately what it does. And then he closes with this, the example of Jesus. And this is why I'm, I'm going to rehearse this for you because it, it flows right into our message this morning. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I know we, we mentioned this last week, but man, that is, you should have that highlighted and underlined, that you have this in Christ. This mind is yours, he says. And he goes on, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But listen to this. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself uh, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then it says, therefore, right? And that's our passage. Therefore, that's a link Therefore, because of this, because of the example of Jesus that Paul has laid out for us, therefore, therefore what? That's what we want to look at this morning. That if we look to the example of Jesus, if we actually consider the mind which is ours in Jesus, the example of selfless sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged this morning at this we will be radically transformed. That's what Paul says. Therefore, as a result of having this mind in you, which is yours, that you can have and possess, if you uh, uh, pursue this, if you are willing to submit yourself to the will of God and say, I will uh, uh, allow myself to be submitted to this mindset, which is mine in Jesus Christ, I will be transformed in three ways. Three ways. Number one, there will be transformation in my conduct. There will be transformation in my conduct. I love how this goes on. This has everything to do with that little example I was trying to share at the beginning. There is transformation in my conduct. Look at what Paul says. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. There is a call in this transformation in my conduct. And the call is this, that because of the example that has been laid out for us, it is more than reasonable and acceptable for me to just obey. That Jesus 
led us out in this incredible example. And he said, I will obey to the point of death on the cross. And it says in, in Hebrews that though he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And we have all kinds of example after example about the obedience of Jesus. And as we look at this and, and, and we have an obedience. And, and by the way, Paul says it's not just a visual obedience. This is what's incredible. He says, therefore, uh, as you obeyed in my presence, even more so you should obey when I'm not there. You see, because obedience, sometimes because of the human heart and the human nature, we want to obey so that others see us obey, right? Because we want to we be visible with our obedience. We want to we do things so that everybody knows that we are obeying. But Paul says, I want you to obey even more so when no one's looking. Because that's the transformation of the heart, that when we consider what Jesus did in his obedience to, to death on a cross and how willing he was, consider the contrast of the heart. It considers motives. You know, why am I obeying? What is my purpose? Is it self-serving? You know, when I serve the church, is it, is it so that other people can, can see? You know, I was so uh, encouraged yesterday at our spring cleaning. Uh, so much got done. It was incredible. Thank you all. And, and one of the things that not many of you would know is that uh, uh, Ben Kahneman and, and Rick stayed, and, and Stephen Serene stayed till like 5 p.m. yesterday to get this parking lot done. They were here before 9, and they stayed till after 5. And you know what? They didn't do it so that people could see them do it, and they're not going to get recognized unless I say it. But that's the heart motive is that we're just going to do that's the call. Paul says, even when people don't see you, even when I'm not there, because Paul was their spiritual father, even when I'm not there, I want you to obey. And so we have the heart contrast here. We have a condition of the heart that's shown. The natural tendency of the sinful human heart is, you know, things done in, in secret, right? Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. And, and in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, it talks about... in. All these things in verse 10, it says all these things uh, that we used to do. And he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but now you're no more. And not only that, but when we obey, as Paul says, even when it's not for a motive of making sure those who are over us see it, it's confirmation of our heart, right? It's confirmation of our faith. That why am I doing it? No, uh, I think it was Adrian Rogers who always talked about um, the importance of, of showing up at church. We have a generation that says, you know, church can be anywhere, and it can. But we gather together as confirmation that each time we walk in the building, we say, I believe. That is the number, one of the number one reasons why you show up at church is to be fed, but also to say, I believe. And when we gather together as a family, we encourage one another. We say we collectively believe. And when we are obeying God and we are obeying him, when nobody else is seeing it and nobody else will ever know, it is confirmation to our heart that the reason I do this is because I believe that he is and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So Paul says, hey, the first... Part of this, this transformation in my conduct is that, that we should obey, whether we are seen by men, whether we are seen by a pastor, whether we are seen by our neighbor, whatever it is, we obey. And, and then Paul goes and he says, not just the call here, but a cause for it. And, and, and I love, and this is the encouragement to you, that as Paul goes on, he says, here's why, because Jesus obeyed. 
Because Jesus obeyed and He gave us salvation. And He says, Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this verse has been mistranslated a lot of times. It doesn't say work out for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. And and what that means is you have been given this gift, therefore you ought to be using it and growing into spiritual maturity. The very natural flow and the tendency of our salvation is that once we have been radically saved, then we are radically transformed. And so we work it out. It's like having the gift of a gold mine. And we can have that mine, that cave, all we want. But unless we go and dig through it and find the treasures there, you're never going to have any value in it. And then he says, but but not only that, work it out with fear and trembling. And we say, man, that's kind of a, is this like a scare tactic? that We should be uh, working it out with fear and trembling? No, it means to walk with caution, not to trust yourself. Why? Because we've already said our hearts are desperately wicked. We fall prey to sin and temptation. A natural flow in the order here is first salvation, then growth into spiritual maturity. You've been given a gift, now use it. It's kind of like having a Ferrari in your parking lot and never moving it. You've been given a gift, use it. Work it out. Bring it to its full extent. And don't trust your flesh. And I said this is encouraging. It is. Listen, this is the best part. And I love this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, and you should underline this, for it is God, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Here's the beauty of it all. God does the work. God does the work. You know why? Because I don't have the capacity. I don't have the capacity because everything in me is is filthiness and everything in me is going to fall short and it's going to fail and everything in me is sinful and I'm going to want to do the selfish motives. And, And brothers and sisters, maybe you're much better than I, but when I go wake up in the morning, the first thing I'm thinking about is me. And, and when I go to, to uh, uh, do things, whether it's from the beginning to the end, the first thing that I'm thinking about is me. And when I get on the road and I'm driving and somebody uh, pulls in front of me and they're not going fast enough, the first person that I'm thinking about is me. And then when I go to get in line at uh, the fast food place and it takes too long to get my order, the first thing I'm thinking about is me. You're starting to see a, 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 a trend here, right? When I get home and, and my kids are, are uh, having a discussion that's heated and I want to relax and they have been having a discussion all day and driving my wife insane, uh, the first thing I think about in the midst of all of that is me and I want to sit and rest and not have to deal with anything. Because we are selfish. We talked about this last week. That, that everything in us screams for me, me, me. You don't have to be taught it. 
As babies and infants, we think about me. And, and if we came to the table and we read that, that we should have this mind of Christ and we should be uh, sacrificial, we might attempt it and we might have images of it and glimpses of it, but the reality is that we could never accomplish it. And God knows that. And so he gives us a capacity. And notice what Paul says. He says, for it is God who works in you. God works in you. And what does he work? He works to both to will and to work. The word will there literally means desire. So not only do we have selfish motivations, and it is literally impossible for us to self-correct that, God says, I will help you by giving you a desire to do it. And then he says to work, and that literally means energize. So I will give you a desire and the energy. You know, I've had conversations with people so many times about what they call small plate capacity people. And so they, they can only handle so many things, right? And, and some people's plates are larger. They can do multiple things at once and they can, they can handle various uh, ministries or, or jobs and they can do all kinds of things. At the same. They're high capacity. Oftentimes you find multi-millionaires. They are high capacity, big plate people because they can handle all kinds of things. And then there are some people, and by the way, there is no... Uh, uh, more value because you are a big plate versus a small plate. But some people, they can only handle one thing at a time. I cannot, I am, when it comes to doing the work of God, I am more than small plate. I am no plate. And here's the beauty of it. God says, I will, I will work in you. I will give you the desire and the energy to do it. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. That when we come and we fail each day, we can submit ourselves to the will of God. And he says, I will work in you to both will and to work. And then I love what he says at the end, for my good pleasure. What's the question that every uh, uh, person that graduates high school, that they are going to college or they're going to do whatever is next step in life, what's the question they always get asked? What are you going to do? And, and as a believer, we say, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. And we open up the books. You know, when I was in, uh, just graduated from high school, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. I didn't know I had all kinds of interests. But I, I mean, ultimately, what I knew what I wanted to do was find a job that required the least amount of work and make the most amount of money. Um, my wife has told me I'm not supposed to say that anymore um, because it makes me look bad. But, you know, I'm just sinful. So, um, just being honest, one of the things that, that my parents wanted me to do, and, and it was super helpful, was take one of those, uh, I don't know if we call it an aptitude test or something, basically to try and help you figure out what are your interests in life, so you can know what your, your will from God was. And, 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 and that's okay, but, but understand this, brothers and sisters, if you're struggling to know what does God want me to do, Submit yourself to this mindset. Submit yourself to the will of God that says, I will sacrifice self in order that I might see what God has for me. Because guess what it says here? Did you, did you hear it? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for my good pleasure. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Submit to Him and He will cause you to do that which He desires you to do. 
And so the struggle we have in life is easily answered. What am I supposed to do with my life? What is God's will for my life? Submit yourself to the will of God, and I guarantee you He will do it. So oftentimes, uh, I find it interesting that when people ask me, what is ministry and what is God's will for my life? God's will for you is that whenever you see a need, you ought to go and fulfill it. Because God brings those needs to your vision. Because you are the one He's asking to do it. And so oftentimes we see a need and we say, oh man, somebody would be really good if they did that. That is something that could be done really well. If, if Man, I can think of about five people who would be great for that. No, no, God put it on your heart. You should be doing it. And brothers and sisters, I might say that if we aren't doing it, we are not submitted to the will of God. And that's a hard thing to say. Because there are so many times where I look around and I see things that should be done. And I have actually had to go back and, and confess to the Lord, how can I ask others to do something I'm not willing to do? Because isn't that the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is that he said, I know my people need me because they could never save themselves. And I will go and obey and suffer on a cross for them. And so if we are willing to submit ourselves and, 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 and say, you know what, this example of Jesus is exactly what I need, and we begin to do that, we will find a transformation in my conduct. If we submit to Him, He gives us the desire and the energy to do what pleases Him. And the key is willingness. So why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? Why do we still struggle with it? It's not a, it's not a hidden answer. Selfishness, right? It's either one of two things. It's either my selfishness or it's a lack of faith that says I don't believe that God's going to work in me to will and to do His good pleasure. Those are the only two reasons why we don't do the things that God asks us to do and that there isn't a transformation in our conduct. We say, well, I just don't see it in my life. And, and, and believe me, brothers and sisters, we will struggle in our walk of faith, but we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we should be seeing growth. I love it when, uh, uh, if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards, um, he had a, a series of resolutions. And one of his most amazing resolutions to me was that he said, I uh, resolve to know that I have grown each year. And, and you say, well, that's, that's nice. And all. But do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, I resolve not to guess, not to assume, not to think, but to know that I have grown uh, uh, in my spiritual walk of faith. So that requires evidence that I can see it visibly. Brothers and sisters, if we don't see a transformation in our conduct, we ought to ask ourselves, what is it in me that is preventing God to work and to will for His good pleasure? And I said there were three things, and that was the first one. The second one, he goes on, he says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The second thing we will find in our life is, is you know, because we read through this and we think, man, Paul's just kind of rambling incoherently about different things. No, there's a reality. It's connected. He says if you follow the example that Christ set for us, we will have a transformation in our character and we will also have, I mean, a transformation in our conduct, but also in our character. Our temperament will be changed. 
We'll begin to look and act like Jesus. I was a spoiled... Okay, I still am. I was even more of a spoiled brat when I was a little kid, and I was super picky, and then I traveled all over, and I had to learn that if I don't eat this, I'm going to get hungry. I had to grow up. Brothers and sisters, as the Word, as we begin to look at the example of Jesus and we begin to eliminate self because we are submitting to what Jesus is asking us to do, to be obedient and willing, we will find that our character changes and our temperament, that we will begin to, as Paul says, start doing things without grumbling or questioning. These are the behaviors that destroy families. Grumbling and complaining. Remember, from the beginning, Paul's talking about unity that brings joy in the church. He's writing to the Philippians, and apparently there was a struggle with, with questioning and murmuring. And, 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 and the reality is Paul wanted to address that right away because he says, if you're following the example of Jesus, you're not questioning your brother and sister. You're not grumbling about them. You're not uh, uh, arguing about them. There are people that I feel have hurt me over the course of my life. And those who are still believers, those who have been believers and are believers, they are still my brother or sister, whether I have had a dispute with them or not. And so I have to deal with my own heart and realize that Jesus loves them. And sometimes that's a hard thing to do. But the reality is that as we begin to become more selfless and begin to follow the example of Jesus, our character changes to a place where we begin to love our brothers and sisters. Because as we look at the example of Jesus, where was his selfishness? Where did Jesus say as he was being hung on a cross, you know what, these guys don't really love me. These guys betrayed me. These guys hurt me. I'm going to take back all the things I've said and done. No, no. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the example that is set before us. So how can we approach our brothers and sisters? How can we approach the family that, that gathers here at HGC and not look and say, why am I arguing and complaining? Why? And because, by the way, that's what children do. But we need to eliminate it because we have the example of Jesus. And as we do that, our temperament changes. And, and, and those things that, that, by the way, you know where grumbling and discontentment always comes from? Unmet expectations. I've been a pastor now for almost 15 years at this location. No, 12 years at this location, right? But I've been a pastor for almost 15 years, and I can almost guarantee you that anytime somebody has complained to me about something in regards to the church, it's because of an unmet expectation. I would venture to put my foot out there to say that it's probably 99.99% of the time. It's because of an unmet expectation. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. Brothers and sisters, if the leadership of any church isn't sinful, then you are in heaven. And we need to realize that, that if we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and my character changes, that I have seen churches destroyed by this. And it's sad because this is the family of God and, and, and we're called to find joy. And you can find, by the way, if, if, if I don't want to sound harsh to the church because, by the way, there are biblical examples of the people of God when they were called out of Egypt. What a, five minutes into the journey, Moses, why'd you bring us out here? You brought us into the desert. They were grumbling and complaining the minute they were set free from the bondage that they were in. 
It is a real temptation, but if we imagine the suffering of Jesus and His example, that's what Paul is saying, we can easily stop grumbling and complaining and being discontent with life. So the coffee wasn't warm enough this morning. Jesus died on a cross for you. So the music was too loud. Jesus died on a cross for you. And not only that, Paul says, and if we are seeing this, we will do all things without grumbling or questioning, and we will be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Not only will there be a transformation in our character by our temperament, but also our testimony. In a world where politics is nothing but fighting, right? I mean, one side is right, and the other side is right, and they're going to fight and fight, and they're going to slander each other. And, and imagine in a world where fighting, you know, whether, you know, because we can just not only just talk about politics, we can talk about race too, right? Because there's racial divides that are going on. There are all kinds of things going on that are causing the bickering and the fighting. And if we are to be the children of God, imagine what the world would say when they see a heart that is transformed that says, these are my brothers and sisters, and I love them. Because Jesus loved them. Imagine the light that will shine out of the church when, when the, the world sees a, a, a social economic divides being unified in one cause and in one heart. Imagine races being joined together because of Jesus. Imagine all kinds of divides being brought together that way you will be blameless and innocent children of God. People have nothing to accuse you of. Then Paul says that, that uh, uh, holding fast the word of life, that literally means offering it. Offering the gospel to the world. Light offering the gospel. Why? Because we see the radical transformation of our hearts because of this. And I just asked myself as I began to think through some of this this week is why am I discontent with my life? Discontent with my church. Why is that? How do I act upon those discontentments is going to be predicated on how willing I am to submit to the example of Jesus. The psalmist says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? And then what does he say? Put your hope in God. That if our eyes get turned from what's going on around myself to Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says, looking not on to ourselves, but looking to the example of Him. He says, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He did it for joy. And if I begin to evaluate this, if I submit myself to Him dying to myself, we will have a dynamic character transformation. A transformation in our conduct, a transformation in our character, that we will begin to shed these things. And then last but not least, I love what Paul says here, and this is probably the hardest one, but it's also one of the most beautiful ones. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice Sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You realize what Paul's saying there? Saying, 
I am likely, I am likely to suffer and die for my faith. And you should rejoice with me. When we see the example of Jesus that Paul laid out, that though he was equal with God, he emptied himself and he said, I'm going to make a way for others and I'm going to serve others and I'm going to offer myself in obedience to death on the cross. That when we do that, there's a transformation in our concepts. How our views drastically transform. Our, our trends and our thoughts of what is important drastically change, don't they? When we begin to consider others as more important than self, how our views on life drastically change. As I've grown, and maybe it's because of an understanding that I'll never be rich, my views on money have drastically changed. Money comes, money goes. If we understand that Jesus said, I am going to serve, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to offer His life as a ransom for many. If we begin to have this mind filter into our lives and, and become an active role that we say, I am willing to submit to this, there is a transformation in my concept of life. Look at what Paul says about life. He says, even if I am to be poured out, poured out, that it is a temporary thing. I think of pouring out a cup of water. Eventually it ends. Paul understood that. That life is temporary. Brothers and sisters, we heap mountains of possessions and things that, that are going to be meaningless when we're gone. We pursue after the wrong things all the time. And I say we, I mean me. And, and Paul says that even if I am to be poured out, that I am going to offer myself a drink offering that is temporary. And not only that, but upon this sacrificial offering that his life from here on out with the mind of Christ was about sacrificing himself for God. Our concepts of life Change drastically that Paul understood as he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said that I am bought at a price, therefore I will honor God with my body. How do I do this? But, but not only is there a transformation of his concept of life, but also of love. He says, rejoice with me and I will rejoice with you. I am glad his love is not about self, but others. Why was Paul glad? Because he was willing to offer himself as a sacrifice for the Philippians. And it made him rejoice. You know, I think we talked about this a number of weeks ago, that we are a society that has a multi-billion dollar uh, uh, depression, anti-anxiety uh, industry. First world country. Wealth galore. And some of you may say, well, I'm not wealthy. Okay, uh, are you living on more than a dollar a day? Because most of the world isn't. And yet we are the most depressed country in the world. Because we're focused on self. So Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. That he willingly emptied himself. And next week, man, one of the greatest passages in Mother's Look at what Paul's values are. 
I take all these things that were gain in this world, and they are dung that I might gain Christ. How does Paul get to that place? Because there's a transformation of his concepts of life because he understood as he submitted himself to the mind of Christ and he began to say, I will serve and offer myself. And when I do, if I am poured out as a sacrificial drink offering for my brothers or sisters, I will be glad and rejoice. And we say, but that's hard because I have too much of Nate in me. Remember what Paul said earlier? That if we are willing to submit, God says it is God who works and wills in us to do for His good pleasure. I'm not going to spend really any time on the rest of this, but it's really interesting that after Paul goes through all these things, he now gives you two examples. Two examples of men who were, uh, uh, in case we look at this and say, well, Paul, that's, that's unrealistic. Nobody can do that. Well, guess what? You have Timothy, who, who, as Paul says, didn't look to his own interests, but to the interests of the church. That he cared, and he's proven himself because he has been transformed by the mind of Christ. And Paul says, therefore, I will send him to you. You know what's really funny? I just tried to swipe my Bible. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But then he goes on, he says, Epaphroditus, here is a brother who willingly risked his life. These are men who actually submitted themselves to this. So if we sit here and say, but, but that's impossible. No, it's not impossible. We will be transformed in our, in our, our, our conduct. We'll be transformed in our character. We'll be transformed in our concepts of life. You know, uh, I've been going through revelations in my personal study lately. And I remember growing up, I didn't want anything to do with revelation or heaven. You know why? Because I had too much in this life I wanted to accomplish. I wanted Jesus to come back after I had been married and had kids and enjoyed life. And the older I get, the more I love the last bit of revelation where John says, Even so, Lord, come quickly. Why is that? Is it because I'm getting older and my body hurts more? Yes, but it's because I've begun to fall more and more in love with Jesus and I want to be with Him. Sometimes I struggle when my 10-year-olds, who, who I am amazed at her concept of some spiritual things, when she says, you know, I can't wait. I mean, I'm really struggling. It's almost like it was out of the words of Paul. I can't really figure out whether I want to be here alive with you guys or be with Jesus. I'm like, man, that sounds familiar. Um, but she wants to be with Jesus. How do you get that mindset when you realize that Jesus is the most important thing? What is it that I value in life? What are my goals and purpose? Because they reveal my concept of this life. The gospel is everything. Paul says that, that his desire, his goal, and we're going to look at this next week, Philippians 3, verse 10. Paul says that this is what I desire. This is the only thing I want in life, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. 
When we get the gospel, when we understand that, that Jesus, who, who this amazing thing that Paul just told us the example is, that Jesus said, my people need me, they can't do it, I'm going to sacrifice myself, I'm going to give up. Do, do you realize that the King of Kings, who sits enthroned above the heavens and the earth, who, who is in this most majestic place, he says, I'm going to set aside all of my deity, So that I can be with my people. I'm going to put on flesh and blood. And I'm going to go live with them. And what's amazing to me that I still don't understand is how he could still be fully God and fully man. And I I understand that someday I may grasp that when I'm in glory. But the reality is that when he came and he lived a perfect and holy life. And then he died on a cross. Putting aside all selfishness. Because he had none. Because all he ever thought of was, was sinful humanity. And he says, I will offer myself on a cross. And he died a gruesome, horrible crucifixion. And the curtain was torn. And then the writer of Hebrews paints this beautiful picture. Hebrews chapter 10. I'd encourage you to read it starting at like verse 19. It says, By a new and living way we can enter into the Holy of Holies. And we can come to God our Father with no need of somebody to intercede on our behalf because Jesus has done it for us. And what's beautiful about it, what's beautiful about it is that God says you can come to me and find rest and all you need is to believe this gospel truth. To turn from self to Christ. Jesus gave us his selfless example and that transforms And as I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking about a lot of things in regards to ministry and trying at times to figure out, you know, what does it mean to lead a church? What is it? You know, I've been doing this for 12 years here, and I still don't know what I'm doing. And you know what? The Lord has been just hammering in on me and hammering and hammering and hammering. Pray. Pray. That's why uh, last Thursday I stressed so important, brothers and sisters, if we aren't willing to pray together as a church, we will never accomplish anything. Because we have not submitted ourselves to the will of God. Because we have said we will do it on our own and we will grow weary and we will fail and we will never accomplish what God desires for us. Because if we're going to say that God is the one who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, yet we are not going to go to him and say, I will submit to you and I will come to you and ask you for your assistance, then we are doing nothing but a work of the flesh. And that's not just true about a church, it's true about our individual lives. We ought to be pleading with the Lord, God, would you make this mine be mine? which you have given me through Jesus Christ, so that when I walk into my job on Monday morning, I am not concerned about whether or not I'm doing what God desires me to do because I am submitted to Him. We can't expect to, to have that accomplished in our jobs, in our church, in our personal lives when we lead our families, men. We can't expect to lead our our wives and our children unless we are praying to the Lord and pleading with Him that this mind be ours because it is only by Him doing a work in us that will be accomplished. I am so convinced of this. I'm going to start at 9.15 on Sunday mornings meeting in the fellowship hall with whoever will join me in prayer to pray for this church. 
Because I believe that prayer is the only way that we will put on the mind of Christ in a regular fashion and be transformed. Because it says in here that if we do and we are willing, we will be a light in a wicked and perverse generation. If anybody doesn't think that this world right now that we are living in is not wicked, then you have your eyes closed. And I don't want anybody to feel guilt and shame into coming because we are not under a gospel of guilt and shame. But I am pleading with the Lord. I'm pleading with the Lord on your behalf and on my behalf that we would put on the mind of Christ and be a light in a dark world. And we could set aside our selfish ambitions and our desires for what we want to accomplish in this community, for what we want to accomplish in our own lives, but that we can accomplish what God delights and desires for us to do. And I am convinced that if we are willing to do that, we will be radically transformed. And what a glorious thing that will be. Joy in Jesus. There's been a buzzword I've heard a lot, and that is weariness. Where does weariness come from? It comes from selfishness, not submitted to the will of the Father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that in Jesus we have the greatest joy. We thank you that you willingly sacrificed yourself and you offered up an example. And Father, we come before you as sinful men and women and children. And we say, God, we thank you for sanctification that declares us innocent by the blood of Jesus. And Father, as we come before you, we plead. God, would you make this our mind that we would not look to our own interests, but look to the interest of others? Would you make it our mind that we would walk in a way that is, is radically transformative? Because we know that you are working in us. God, would you help us to submit to your will? Father, I pray if there is anyone here today that does not know you, that has never submitted to the salvation that is freely offered, that they are trying to get to heaven by their own works and their own understanding. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that thinks that they are saved, but they have set their life in such a way that they are trying to work it. Lord, I pray that they would fall before you and realize that you are a merciful and loving Father who offers a free gift of salvation to all who believe. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name, men, women, and children would come to you this morning. And I pray that as we walk, Father, we would be radically transformed because our mind is on you. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. These guys are going to play. And as they do, it is such a great privilege that we can participate in the ceremony that reminds us of Jesus' blood, His death. And as we join together in fellowship as a body of believers that we say and, and we talk about walking into church declaring, I believe when you participate in the Lord's table, you declare for the world to know. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that His body was broken, His blood was poured out. I believe that He is my resurrected Savior who has bought me by His sacrifice. And I celebrate that. 
And not only do I believe that, I believe that He is radically changing me today more than yesterday and more than the day before and that all of my sins are being taken away and I am striving to live in a way that is pleasing to Him by His strength. Because if we believe that He died for us, we can also believe He lives for us. So as they play and take some time, Contemplate your heart. Paul said, let a man examine himself to make sure that he is worthy. Because we are honoring the Lord. And if we are going to come up here and say, I believe that Jesus died for me, but I'm going to live like the devil, how is that honoring to the Lord? And so we lay aside our sins. and We confess them. And when you're ready, just go out the outside aisles, and there are two different places, and then go back up the middle to find your seat. And we will rejoice together at what the Lord has done for us. Can we all stand? I'll close in prayer. If you need prayer, we want to pray for you. Prayer is so important. It is us pleading with the Lord. I want to pray for your week. I want to pray that the Lord would just bless you and make His face to shine upon you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Father, we rejoice that you love us so much. But Father, we don't rejoice in what we get. We rejoice because you are glorious. And Father, I pray that as we leave from here, that our lives would be about bringing glory and honor to your name. And Father, I pray for each one here today that as we leave from here, that we would have a blessed week, a week that would be as light shining in a darkness And Father, I pray that our hearts would be in tune to the very mind of Christ and that as we walk from here, we would walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that it is you who works in us both to work and to will for your good pleasure. We praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You are dismissed.